Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Technology Untangled and Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hello, Stephen. How are you? I'm good, Jason. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing okay. We got um, we got a packed show this week. We do. We're a little late. We're a couple days late for un, un, uh, uncontrollable circumstances, but we're here now uh, with uh, slightly more than a fortnight's worth of space events, and there's a lot. Yeah, we had a little hold on the countdown, but here we are. That's right. It, it happens all the time. You go into a, an unplanned hold sometimes. You got to check the wiring. You got to make sure everything's okay. And then uh, sometimes you got to scrub and come back a couple days later. That happens too. It's okay. It's fine. So uh, let's start with litter. Let's start with, with, the, with, with the garbage that SpaceX is littering all over various U.S. states. Why don't we start there? Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of two stories that happened about the same time that we want to talk about together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is you may have remembered uh, about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, that there were some photos that showed up from people living uh, out in Oregon and Washington State. You know, one of those, wow, there's lights in the sky. What is it? Uh, well, it turns out that it was a... <laughs> what is it? Out of the way, thunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's never aliens. But sometimes it's a SpaceX Falcon 9 upper stage that wandered off and had to mm-hmm. be had to be uh, deorbited in a place that wasn't planned. Yeah. I mean, what happened with this? It sounds like the, the, the deorbiting failed or at least partially failed because the idea here is they 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 set these things so that what is left of them comes down in completely uninhabited areas but they seem to have had a failure of some kind that ended up putting it right over the pacific northwest yeah so it it, of course it breaks up as it re-enters and that's why you get all the fun pictures out on the coast because you see all this this debris that's lit up as it's uh as it's burning up and uh most of the time you would expect that nothing would survive that, right? Even though they usually do it over, you know, vast stretches of ocean where no one is, it's designed to be uh, completely broken up in the atmosphere. But uh, this time that wasn't quite true. So there was a, a pressure vessel, the composite overwrap pressure vessel, COPV. This is, uh, there are several of them in a Falcon 9. They store helium at super high pressure, and then they use that helium to pressurize the, basically the the propellant tanks on the second stage. And one of these tanks came down, basically intact, and landed on some farmland. Left a nice dent in the ground, perfectly shaped like a COPV. It's like when Wiley Cody runs through a, a rock wall, and his outline is perfectly in the wall, mm-hmm. basically like that. No one was okay. hurt, but this landowner uh, discovered a. Uh, some rocket parts uh, or a rocket part on his uh, on his property. Yeah, I think Elon Musk tweeted like, "Can we have that back? Uh, like, send it, send it. <laughs> We're gonna send somebody out for that. Yeah, return to sender. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, f- the good news is nobody got hurt. Um, the the truth is that most of the Earth's surface, even the land surface, doesn't have people on it. You know, but yes, this would be bad if this landed in the middle of a city or something like that. Probably there'd be a, it probably you know hurt somebody or damage some property that in a way that is not just sort of a, a, a COPV shaped, 
divot in somebody's uh, somebody's pasture. Right. Or house or car or head. Well, that would be the the worst. Like that the one the one confirmed person who's ever been hit by a meteorite, where she's got a like she got a a, a, a burn on her like leg, but there was a you know rock hole in her ceiling too. You know, not so good. Meanwhile, in Texas, um, hey SN eleven, the great hope for the future of a Starship. <laughs> They're like ah, you know, ten landed hard and then exploded, but. That's okay. 11's right behind and it's going to roll out and uh it did. It was a it was kind of a foggy cloudy day so yeah. it was hard for people to see, but um it it took off. Uh there was a uh it seems like there was a methane leak. So the Raptor engines on the Starship, they use super chilled methane and liquid oxygen as propellants. It's a little bit different from some other rockets. Um, and then th- this led to a problem. The leak led to a problem when they refire the engines when they're trying to come in for their landing. Because the whole purpose of these tests is to not just take this thing off, but but the thing that they haven't done yet, which is to get it to relight those engines and then land and then stay there and then not explode later. Right? That's those are the. I just want to make it clear that there is this not explode later part that we've already seen with SN10. So. Um, when that rocket was refired to slow the Starship uh, SN11 for landing, um, boom, rapid, unanticipated, uh, what is it, uh, dis- disassembly? Disassembly. Uh, yeah, so that happened, and uh, and it, it was foggy enough that it was harder to see it, but uh, it exploded is basically the point. Worse than, uh, than 10 and 9, actually. In terms of... Uh, Starship development, I think Elon Musk tweeted that they know what the problem is. Um, a lot of stuff was already in the works. So they're going to a, a new design for the the next one, which is going to be number 15. And I think they did that. It's like two, uh, for computer people, it's like a 2.0. <laughs> there, there are 1.5. Like they, they incremented the number and they're like, well, this will be the new version. And so there may be things in there that address this already. And then if not, then they, they have things to look for. And Elon Musk put out a a tweet basically that said we're, we know what we're looking for and we'll we'll figure it out and it, some of this may already be fixed in sn15 so there's another one <laughs> another one on the assembly line to either succeed or explode but um the remnants of sn11 are uh are out there yeah unfortunately they're everywhere <laughs> there's uh light debris fragments that uh, according to some accounts on twitter and, and local reporting like as far as five miles or about eight kilometers away, some of that debris came down on the nearby beach, which angered local residents. And mm. uh, this has gotten—I uh, mean, obviously the um, the the crash will be investigated, just as the previous ones have. But because some of this debris came down, you know, beyond the bounds of SpaceX's property. Groups like the Texas Parks and uh, Wildlife Group and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they're all working together to make sure that debris is cleaned up and to minimize any environmental impacts. And there could be fines associated with that, depending on exactly where things came down. And and really, I wanted to pair these two. They're, they're very different stories, right? The first one is really just a freak thing. They haven't had any issues really with the upper stage reentry 
something happened with this flight and it coming down on someone's property is is really unlikely to happen again. But the the story in Texas, um, I think, shows that if they're going to continue down this road and as they go bigger, they may need a, a better plan with, you know, local government agencies, but I think also with the public, better communication about if debris lands beyond their property, uh, how they will address it. You know, I, I would imagine that part of this could be putting some process and some and even some some staff in place to manage this if it becomes uh, an issue again in the future, you know. So they've, they've launched, you know, several of these now and it hasn't been an issue, even though some have failed spectacularly. But they're going to need to... I think really communicate better locally on the ground. And I hope to, to see that from them because people don't want this stuff coming down on the, on the beach. They take their family to, you know, even if they're not there, uh, that's, that's no community wants that. Yeah. I think this is an interesting example too, of uh, when they built the, uh, you know, the space facilities in Cape Canaveral back in the day, I'm sure there was some, push and pull there although the u.s government right was just like no we're doing this yeah. right this is and they, and they had a lot of land and i think it might, was a military base before they even tasked it as this uh and, and here you've got spacex a private organization and they're kind of rolling in and there are there's not a lot of people in boca chica beach but there are people out there and you know this is the this is the interesting thing because this could end up becoming a very busy sort of spaceport and it would bring possibly you know money to the region and they they could end up being uh it could end up being really good for that part of texas or for some people in texas that said it's also a big change and if you live there and you sort of like your life as it is this change is rolling in and it's basically forcing you to move or you're gonna have to deal with these rocket launches and these road closures and the junk on the beach from when the rockets explode and all of that stuff and you know those people (laughs) have rights too so it's an interesting um interesting fluid situation there you know elon musk wants to incorporate a city that basically is like a corporate city that he so he can control the the laws in that city and and uh you know but if i was living on the beach i would be unhappy about that so it's it's just it's something to watch um and this is you know this is the thing is that the space stuff does take you know it's disruptive it's disruptive in lots of ways and um but, you know, you also want to be by the water because dropping junk in the water is better than dropping it on land, generally, as we sort of elaborated earlier on. So how do you how do you balance all that versus going out into the middle of literally nowhere? Because even then, if you have a failure, you know, something's going to be downrange of it. We see that in China. So I don't know. It's uh, it's it's something to watch. And I'm sure that the people there are not happy about it. At the same time, um, it, my my guess is that the Texas Parks and Wildlife and uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife are, are probably going to be working with SpaceX, and SpaceX will be happy to pay whatever mitigation costs, you know, cleanup costs and stuff like that they need to, because that's part of the deal. But I don't know, something to watch. So tell us a little bit about the Dragon capsule rotation. There's been some uh, some traffic shuffling at the International Space Station. I feel like uh, we were on top of this. There was something that we talked about a while ago that has now started to happen, and it's an interesting little twist it, because as you know very well there are two international docking adapters 
on uh, the International Space Station. You know this because you saw the launch of the of the first one that exploded yep. and it didn't get there. And so we've got docking adapter two and three that are up there. Yeah. What happened to one? Uh, it turned into confetti. Yeah, it's funny because the positions are labeled two and three. And so it was originally going to be that docking adapter one was going to be at position two and docking adapter two was going to be at position three. And fortunately, that SpaceX Falcon 9 uh, exploded and therefore two is at two and three is at three. Uh, good news, everyone. Anyway, <laughs> um, they, they had to do this logistics game at the space station, which I think is kind of fascinating. So on Monday, Crew 1, all the astronauts at Crew 1 climbed into their capsule um and and took a little trip and they moved it from what is called the forward docking port which i believe is ida2 and moved to the zenith docking port and if you think so put yourself in the mind of one of these astronauts and think of the dragon capsule being parked at sort of the front of a module like again it orientation it's all relative in space but you're like you're you're at the front of the module what they did was they they all you know unhooked they backed out and th- and this is all automated. They don't actually have to do anything. And then they moved up to the one that's sort of at the top. So they went from forward, which you could think of as the front, to zenith, which is the top. So kind of a 90-degree rotation. And then they redocked there and came back out. All they were, literally all they're doing is moving from one docking adapter and one dock, docking position to another. Yeah, it's like 60 meters. It's not real far. Right. And the, and why do they do it? Why, Especially if it all can happen automatically. The answer is it's their ride. Yep. <laughs> One of the calculations that people don't think about a lot about ISS, and they, we talk about ISS capacity and things like that. The biggest factor in ISS capacity is you can only have as many people on the space station as you have seats for people to come back to Earth if there is a catastrophic event at the space station. Everybody needs a way off the space station and back to Earth. And for the four members of Crew 1, that is is this crew dragon, right? The, the uh, oh, what's it called? Resilience. So they need to be there because if something happens and something goes wrong, they're going to just deorbit the, the resilience and they're going to come back to Earth. Now, that didn't happen, but that's why they, you know, put on all their, all their stuff and they got in the capsule and then, and then they moved, you know, a short amount of distance in a 90-degree rotation and then they're back in the ISS. So, so kind of not anything but also kind of fascinating that logistics behind this because there's a cargo dragon that is coming to the station in june and it needs to dock it at the zenith position where they are now in order to be reached by a robot arm so the stuff can be unloaded from it and you're saying to yourself well why did they go where the cargo dragon is going to go in june and this is the complication is crew two is happening the Mm -hmm. crew two mission is coming it's going to be launched april 22nd it should be reaching iss on april 23rd they're going to stay for a while they're going to stay until halloween ish which means that they'll be there when the cargo dragon comes so they can't crew two well they could but like it's it would be inconvenient for crew two to get there and park at zenith because they would almost immediately or at least by june have to then move to the forward position in order to uh make way for the cargo dragon so in order to get ahead of this because i think they had the time and they wanted to do it now just to get it out of the way they move crew one to zenith so that when crew two comes up crew uh two will be forward and they can stay there and then crew one will leave 
and the cargo dragon will come in and they can grab the stuff with a robotic arm. So that's the idea is it's all like logistics of go here, then go here, then go here, because there's so much traffic going on now with these dragon capsules at the ISS. So like I said, Crew 2 is going to launch April 22nd. It's interesting. We talked about this also a few months ago, the idea that there's going to be crew overlap, which is really interesting. So Crew 1 is planned to depart about April 28th. And and NASA refers to this as, I love this, it's like people clocking in at a factory. It's a five-day shift change on the ISS. <laughs> uh, so, you know, hey, Bob. Hey, Joe. <laughs> checking in, checking out. Uh, like those old cartoons, right? That's uh, that's what's going on there. So, mm-hmm. so there will be a lot of people on the ISS for a few days. And somebody asked, I saw somebody on, in Discord maybe, who said, who, where are they going to sleep? And I don't know the answer to that. I'm actually kind of fascinated. I kind of think that a bunch of people are going to need to sleep in their capsules because I don't think we already know that there's like one too many uh, astronauts for beds or residents of the ISS for the beds that they've got. So either they're, you know, sleeping in shifts or they're sleeping on their ships. That's their that's their choice. Shifts or ships. Uh, Easy to say. So five day shift change, traffic jam. Uh, and, uh, by the way, I've got a little crew uh, update for crew three. Crew three is intended to do this shift change again, October 23rd. Crew three is now scheduled to go up, which would mean crew two would return. Like I said, October 31st, Halloween. And we've got some names for crew three. This is again on a dragon spacecraft. Um, this would be, uh, NASA astronauts, Raja Chari, who's the commander, Tom Marshburn, who is the pilot, uh, uh, ESA astronaut Matthias Maurer and a fourth crew member to be named could be like a I don't know a short stop from the uh, from the Washington Nationals in exchange for cash considerations it's unclear who the who the astronaut to be named is going to be so that's the, there's a lot going on and that leaves aside that there's probably well, okay not probably i'm sorry i'm gonna be meaner to boeing than that there's possibly a <laughs> boeing surliner test at some point that's gonna have to happen and they're gonna have to find a place for it to go too so there's a lot going on at the iss is what i'm saying yep it is uh, a busy time and it's all coming as the commercial crew program turns 10 years old uh, that anniversary was just a few days ago oh and even though this is later than anticipated i think it is proving to uh you know sort of complete the goals initially set out that private companies in partnership with nasa and other space agencies will be able to shuttle people back and forth to the station uh, aboard those capsules and you know spacex is underway and boeing is hopefully not far behind oh do you think the the uh, shortstop from the washington nationals is actually a cosmonaut i wonder I wonder if that's why this is... Well, they, they said something... The report I read said that the fourth crew member was going to be named in, after you know consultation with international partners. And at the time, I was like, well, you've already got an ESA astronaut there. Is there going to be another international astronaut, another non, non-American astronaut who from one of the partner agencies is going to have a ride on that? I didn't think of the other one, which is maybe this is when the, uh, when the Roscosmos seat exchange happens i'm unclear if it's Hmm. if that's too soon or not but given that we're going to have another american riding up on a soyuz the you know the inevitable future of this really does seem to be that for um 
for a bunch of reasons. You, you might you ask yourself, like, well, why don't the Russians just take the Soyuz and we'll take the commercial crew, SpaceX and Boeing, and then done? And the answer is actually what I just said about everybody needs a ride down, is neither Russia or the U.S. really likes the idea of having a uh, technical problem that means that they abandon the station and it's only the other guys who are up there. And that's not because of a geopolitical reason so much as the idea that, you know, there are American operations on that station and there are Russian operations on that station. And ideally you've got people there to monitor both of them. So you, uh, you kind of meld the crews together on these different missions so that everybody's got their ride and you always have a certain number of, of people who are up there from both sides. Uh, so I don't know when, whether this is a hint that that might be the case or not. It's something to watch, but there is another seat on crew three that is uh, not yet uh, known. So it could be who knows who who seat four could be on that. But you know, keep keep an eye out. I, I kind of lean towards Cosmonaut. Yeah, but we'll see. yeah, it could be, or it's Francisco Lindor. He's leaving the Mets and uh, being sent to space. How much time have you spent watching baseball? <laughs> it, I just you know baseball. I'm just player to be named, astronaut to be named. It just seemed yeah. very funny. Anyway. Uh, hey, I, even I know it was just opening week. I, who don't like baseball. Yeah, you, you can't escape. You'll, you'll be able to escape it soon now that the opening week is over. Now, Stephen, there is something. I know you don't like baseball, but there are some things that are near and dear to your heart. Uh, space is one of them. And uh, St. Jude is another. And we have a big update about Inspiration4. And this also brings in SpaceX because this is the... Uh, commercial mission, not to the ISS, just to space. That is part of this. Uh, it's a, it's like a, a part commercial for this guy's startup and part uh, St. Jude uh, fundraiser. And we know who's going to be going on the inspiration for now. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is really, really cool. I actually wore my inspiration for t-shirt just the other day. Oh, nice. And someone asked me if I was going to space and I said, no. So we knew the first two, uh, which is uh, the, the crew is led by entrepreneur and uh, can we just say like super cool pilot dude? <laughs> I'm going to say super cool pilot dude. Maybe. Uh, Jared Isaacman. And he kind of put this together. Uh, they're joined by a former St. Jude patient who now works at the hospital. But the last two seats were left um, uh, open. And the idea was one of them would go to somebody using the technology built by uh, Shift4, which is the company that Isaacman runs. It's like a payment processor type company. Right. And the other was going to be given to somebody who had donated to the campaign because they're trying to raise a bunch of money for St. Jude. And so we now know who those two people are. Uh, The first is Dr. Cyan Proctor. Uh, She's a community college professor. Holds a doctorate in science education and uh, won the contest sponsored through uh, Shift 4 payments. What's really cool about this and reading, there's a great piece in the New York Times. It'll be in the show notes. You can really read about these uh, crew members. Is that she was in the final like 47 names for nine astronaut slots back in 2009. So got pretty oh, wow. close to joining the astronaut corps. And didn't happen, and in the New York Times piece, there's there's all this about kind of thinking that dream was over and kind of moving on from it just to be approached about this. And I think that is a really cool angle. And I think having um, someone really well-versed, obviously, in 
science and education, I think it's just a great fit for this sort of mission because a lot of people are going to be paying attention to this. And I think that they will be able to use those skills in some really interesting ways, hopefully. Yeah, I really like this story a lot. Maybe maybe when this is over, she can um, send a resume to NASA and say, here's something that all of your other astronaut candidates don't have. Yeah. I have been to space <laughs> and not through you I, I know your hardware i know i know the commercial crew hardware so you know let's do it that's right previous experience I've, I've been in that thing it is really cool yeah great story uh they also are joined by christopher sembroski uh he works in the space industry or, or at least for a company that works in the space industry he's a data engineer at lockheed martin and he heard about the mission from the Super Bowl ad, uh, donated to St. Jude online. Yeah. And he didn't originally win the seat. Apparently, like a friend of his from college did, and that person declined the invitation but said, hey, I know somebody who would really love to do it. Uh, he donated. And so- I know, my, I know my friend, the space nut, is the one who wants to do this. Can I give the seat to him? Yes. Basically. Which is also like this really cool story. Uh, yeah. When he was younger, he worked as a counselor at space camp. Is all this history of the Huntsville area. So I think two really great picks for, for rounding out this mission. What Another interesting thing about this, so they're not going to the ISS, they're just going into space. And that has led to an interesting piece of new hardware, which is, uh, we talked a lot just a few minutes ago about docking and the docking adapters and all of that. Well, they don't need to dock. This thing isn't docking with anything. So they're replacing the docking adapter on the top of this capsule, of the of the Crew Dragon capsule, with an observation dome, basically. So you'll be able to float up into the nose of the spacecraft that would normally be the docking adapter. And instead, there will be a 360 degree glass viewing location um, that people will be able to look out and see the Earth from space. And uh, that's pretty awesome, too. That's an awesome little bit of uh, engineering that, yeah. that SpaceX has done for space tourism, which we don't talk about that a lot because there's obviously this whole program got off the ground because of commercial crew. But like SpaceX owns a human rated spacecraft now. Right. And they don't just have to do it for nasa right they can they can anybody essentially can pay spacex to send humans to space and they can say yes and nasa isn't involved and that's really interesting and so here's a first example of it but you know as much focus has gone on to space tourism for things like virgin galactic like spacex can do space tourism now i don't know what the cost is of, of a crew dragon launch but uh but they could do it they can do it now yeah. And it's not just like near, it's like orbits, <laughs> not just sort of going up and touching space and coming back down. It's it's actual putting people in orbit. <coughs> Blue Origin. <coughs> just kidding. We love you, Blue Origin. Yeah, this is cool. And I totally see things like the glass dome, which by the way, has it looks from the render. I mean, who knows what it'll actually be like. Yeah. A spherical piece. Like, I don't know, like at our zoo here in Memphis, there's an area we can like go like underneath and like pop your head up and I, I forget what's in the enclosure but you're like your head is floating in the enclosure and looking at the animals up close my kids mm -hmm. love it i love it it's fantastic kind of looks like that um yeah. and when blue origin talks about their capsule design they talk about how large the windows are so you can really g get a great view and you know that stuff is important when you talk about things like 
someone buying a trip to space, right? right. They want to be able to float up and, and see and, and experience it the best they can. So I think this is a really, really cool addition. Yeah. So this is going to be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Um, when they uh, when they launch, yeah, and there's a there's a NASA quote in this article on the Verge about it, basically saying it's a commercial launch. NASA doesn't have to approve this design, uh, so they're not getting their hands uh, in it. We got nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Don't 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 call us. All right, so let's take our br- our first break, Jason. Okay, sounds good. All what right, are, we gonna, are you going to tell our audience about something cool, Stephen? I am. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Technology Untangled. We all love finding new podcasts to explore, new ways to learn, new hosts to enjoy. And Technology Untangled, hosted by Michael Bird, is a show that deciphers tech's rapid evolution with one simple question in mind. What's really going to shape our future? And what's going to end up in the bargain bin of history with the floppy disk? So we see these new things coming all the time. Sometimes it's hard to tell what's actually going to matter, and uh, Michael on the show deals with that. Uh, I just recently listened to an episode about supercomputing, which I didn't, I didn't know that much about, but hearing about the sheer scale of these things and what they can do, it's not just figuring out you know scientific and mathematical problems. They're using supercomputers in the fight against COVID, for instance. Lots of really cool examples. Past guests include people from Google, Aston Martin Red Bull Racing, The New York Times, Nokia, and more. Episodes cover things like a deep dive into 5G, talking about the who, what, whys, and hows of the the new fancy networking that we have on our phones and what it actually means. Again, how supercomputers are helping us in the fight against COVID, AI and the future of jobs, on and on. Search for Technology Untangled anywhere you listen to podcasts, and we'll include a link in the show notes. Our thanks to Technology Untangled for the support of the show and Relay FM. It is the month of tiny Martian helicopters, which is just the one. Yeah, finally. I've been waiting for this month for a long time, and we get it. We got it mm-hmm. right now. Yes. So uh, on April 3rd, so just a little less than a week ago, the Perseverance rover lowered the Ingenuity helicopter onto the surface of Mars. You know, it was tucked up kind of under the belly pan, like a little baby kangaroo, I guess. And it was uh, let down, and then, and then the rover drove away from it. Uh, and then the rover took... Uh, last night, actually, JPL published a photo of the Perseverance rover taking its first full selfie. And you can see Ingenuity in the background. It's really cool. Um the first hurdle Ingenuity had to pass, which it did, was surviving the Martian climate. And it was designed to do so, but it's really, uh, really cold on Mars. And Ingenuity is not this big spacecraft. It doesn't have a nuclear-powered power source like the rovers do, uh, but it came through just fine. Uh, they've been checking out the thermal control and power systems, and they can adjust those as needed. The rotor blades were folded together when it was tucked up underneath the rover, and they have now been freed, and the team will be doing some basic movements to make sure that uh, they have all the range of motion that's expected, nothing was damaged uh, during launch or descent. Yeah, I think right before we started to record, they sh- they, they posted an, a little animation of the, the blades moving freely so they did a they did a free movement test to make sure that they're awesome they're spinning and and so that we've we've gotten confirmation that the blades are 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 free are free to spin 
That's great. Um, and the the test will be a uh, the next test will be a to spin them up slower than the speed needed to take off, but just to make sure that everything is good to go. The flight should be no earlier than April 11th, so in just just a few days that window opens. Uh, so that's really exciting, and I think we'll be talking much more about this next time. Yeah, there's a lot to come there. Uh, so so next time, I think it'll be Mars helicopter talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we got a couple fortnights worth of it because they're limited to basically 30 days. So we'll uh, we'll get the whole story in the next month. So let's go from something small and existent to something very big and marginally existent. SLS segment. Space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, Flight, mechanical geopolitics, systems, systems, engineering systems, achievements, systems, news, systems, and, and trivia. trivia. SLS segments. Segment, 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 segment. There's been another hot fire test. Not a big one, just a little one. Uh, a little one. So we've talked a lot about the the four engines at the four motors at the bottom of SLS. They're the RS-25, which used to be known as the uh, space shuttle main engines, SSMEs. And these have been refurbished. Uh, they are a number of shuttle era RS-25s that have been refurbished and upgraded. They're also contracts for building new ones. Uh, they had a hot fire test at Stennis for uh, engine N6007, which is the fifth uh, nozzle uh, to be repurposed. Uh, for this use uh, out of 16. There's 16 total upgraded shuttle uh, main engines. And uh, so this was upgraded and tested and uh, making sure that all of its uh, components are good. And I will just bring it up because, uh, you know, we kind of talked about the green run and this big eight-minute hot fire test. And then there's like one, you know, one last one. And there may be more, uh, but... Uh, this RS-25 got its day in the sun. Good to know. Uh, up next, I want to talk about the Rainbird system. This is part of launching a rocket that we see, but we don't really talk about <laughs> really all that much at all. And that is all of the water that is dumped onto mobile launch platform that flows out mm-hmm. from underneath it. Speaking about the hot fire test, we saw it at Stennis, right? Hundreds the of waterfall. thousands of gallons of yeah. water. Uh, and this has uh, several uses. It helps break up vibration and uh, pressure from bouncing back off the hard surface back up to the rocket and damaging it. Uh, It helps with noise suppression. It also creates a lot of steam, which is fun. And the way that water has been flowing onto these mobile launch platforms in the past uh, is an older version of this. So this is called the Rainbird system. Uh, It got the name because uh, apparently someone uh, thought that it looked like uh, one of those sort of old-timey, uh, you know, like... Sprinklers. Yeah, you know, like the tink, 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 you know, one of those guys? Uh-huh. That was a terrible sprinkler noise. Yeah, I don't even know what you were doing there. That's not good. Is your sprinkler an elephant? What is happening there? Yeah. So much better. Looks like one of those. It doesn't move like that, but if you look at the picture... It kind of looks like one, just much bigger. And so for Artemis II, which is the first crewed launch of Orion and SLS, they're working on a new prototype of the Rainbird. 
And the uh, idea with this one uh, is that it would be more efficient and give them better control over uh, the basically the spread of the water coming out of it. But what caught my eye about this was how they're going about the testing. And so they have this design, I think they're going to work, but instead of just building a bunch of full-scale ones, they are using small-scale testing at first using 3D printed parts. When I was at Huntsville three years ago, uh, one of the the people I got to talk to was running their 3D printing lab and they were basically experimenting with all of these different types of materials and ways of constructing things via 3D printing for use in rockets. And it reminded me of that. But the idea that this technology has come so far that like NASA is using it to prototype just really struck me as, as pretty cool. And this is a really important part of getting a rocket off the ground. But again, one that we don't really think about very much. And so to see them spending time on it, uh, looking to upgrade this uh, was an interesting story to me. Right. So the new one will be there for Artemis 2, I guess. Artemis 2. And the, these new ones can release enough water to fill a swimming pool every second. Okay. Which is, uh, I, I can say the sentence. It doesn't really mm. <laughs> make any sense to my brain, but it's a, a lot, lot of, of water. A lot of water, yeah. But you need it all down there underneath so that when you hit it with the rocket fire that things don't burn and shake and yeah fall apart. It's not so good. Instead, it just boils. You can make a lot of tea with <laughs> one swimming pool worth of tea every second, I guess. It's a lot of tea. Like, what kind of tea is appropriate for heating up with rocket exhaust? Um, hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, probably a like a a green tea because it's because of the a- antioxidants because the oxidizers in the anyway. Yeah, hmm. space, space okay. tea. I was going to go with black because everything's just like burned and crispy. (laughs) Well, that's if you don't put the water down, then you get... (laughs) No, I burned it. (laughs) They should put like a scent in there so that when uh, everybody goes out, after the the rocket takes off, everybody's like, hmm, roses, nice. Mm. Mm. Oh, they used periwinkle this month. Oh, this rocket, the the new rocket smells so much better than the old ones do. Mm -hmm. What were we talking about? (laughs) SLS segment. (laughs) Uh, to pair with that story, uh, there's also a story about the launch control system. It's actually called the Spacecraft Command and Control System, SCCS. And this is the computer system at Kennedy. So the actual, uh, you know, when the rocket, before the rocket launches, it's under the control of Kennedy Space Center. It launches and then it all goes to Houston. But uh, in the launch control room, it's exactly what you think about when you think about the you know previous areas of space flight where it is a bunch of people and a bunch of screens. But that hardware and software is basically all from the shuttle era. So NASA and its partners have been working on for a long time getting that upgraded to take in and deal with the amount of data coming in off of SLS and Orion. Uh, NASA says it's about 100 megabytes per second, and this is much more telemetry data than they've had to deal with before. And so they're upgrading the hardware, upgrading the software, and they've been uh, running uh, tests on that for for years, really. Um, And the, the big milestone that has passed is that uh, the this new launch control system has been certified for 
Artemis 1. Now, that doesn't mean they're done upgrading it and changing it. This article goes into talking about there are going to be things that we learned from this and we will improve it for Artemis 2, which again is the first crude launch. But uh, basically the the uh, the support system where everyone, all the engineers are and everyone's calling out to the launch director, all of that looks like it's in pretty good shape. And from now until launch, the team will be running through... Uh, various um, launch simulations to make sure that if they see something on launch day, they know what it is, but also to fine-tune the SCCS so they can continue to tweak software, change out hardware as they run through these simulations and maybe uh, maybe run into issues. So uh, it's a big step for that that ground support crew. And you know, you don't want to mix the two. You don't want your rainbirds getting on your SCCS. It's probably not waterproof, but two very important mm. uh, pieces of the ground operation that without the SLS isn't going anywhere. We mentioned Artemis two for the new rainbirds. Um, what's up with that? The uh, we know that we had the green run. Uh, things are moving ahead with Artemis one. It, it sounds like the Artemis two. Um, work has really begun in earnest now that Artemis one is kind of being shipped away. Yeah. So I don't know if at the green run, there was like a major flag that allowed Artemis two to move forward or not, but it may just be that the timing has worked out, but Artemis two, that SLS rocket is underway. Uh, the inner tank, which is part of the upper portion of the core stage uh, it kind of sits in between uh, some uh, two of the tanks, and it also has all the structure for the solid rocket boosters, or a lot of the structure for the solid rocket boosters to attach to in the middle part of the rocket. So it's a very structural, strong piece of the core stage. Uh, that has been uh, assembled, and it will begin uh, to be paired with uh, other parts of this rocket. You have the liquid oxygen tank, uh, you have the the forward skirt, all these different pieces. And if you go through, through this article, you can see basically how they stack this together. This section of the rocket will be 66 feet tall once it's completed. Uh, and this inner tank is uh, kind of the, the bottom part of this section of the rocket. It's also important because it is home to the avionics, so basically the onboard computer. If you think back to the Saturn V, remember there was one section, one ring, and the computer was, you know, all around the edges of it. And you can look at pictures of it, and it's, it's basically a computer built in on the inside edge of a ring, uh, very similar to how they're doing it with the SLS. And so this is a, a very structural, a very critical piece, and it's the, it is the first piece when you are putting an, an SLS together. So uh, the second rocket is starting to take shape. Uh, you know, like Artemis 1, solid rocket boosters are further ahead. And, you know, a lot of things have to come together, but uh, they already have one under their belt. So this should go faster, one would hope. And uh, yeah, it's kind of cool to see a second one getting underway. And this is the one that's going to take uh, people, you know, out past the moon. Right. And this is the one that'll give. Um everybody who bet the over on Eric Berger's one and a half SLS launches, <laughs> uh, their money. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what, 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 uh, casino is taking those bets. I don't know. There's probably know. someone out there who's <laughs> taking those bets. You want to tell us about our second sponsor? 
Sure. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. You can create uh, a website for whatever your next idea is with a unique domain, their award-winning templates, and a whole lot more. Whether it's an online store, a portfolio, a blog, Squarespace can help you do it. It's an all-in-one platform. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about the, the software in the background. You just use Squarespace. Squarespace takes care of the rest of the stuff behind the scenes. They have award-winning support. It's available 24-7, so if you need help, you can get it. They let you quickly and easily get a unique domain name for your project. And all of those templates that I mentioned where they've won awards for these beautiful, professionally designed templates that are responsive, they look great on phones, they look great on computers, all to show off whatever your next big idea is. Stephen, you have used uh, and talked about using Squarespace for uh, various projects for nonprofits and community organizations and stuff like that it's it's as somebody who's built sites for those groups the 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 terrifying thing is the handoff because um you have to handle all the technical problems that come and that's the beauty of squarespace is that uh, it's just squarespace so there aren't any yeah that's right they can go in and upload new content and pictures and text and change things around and they're never in danger of you know, quote, breaking the site because Squarespace just makes sure that the content is one thing and the website's kind of something else. And it really, it's easy for people to do and I don't have to sweat over when I hand them a password. <laughs> that's a big thing. If you're, if you're a technical oriented person getting something set up for somebody. And if you're not, that's the beauty of it is that you can set this up yourself too. Uh, when you uh, decide to sign up, you should use the offer code liftoff. Um, Plans start at $12 a month, which is amazing. Uh, I think back to the earlier days of the internet. It's like the idea that you could have a website for $12 a month. It's a wild. Um, you can start a trial with no credit card at all required. Just go to squarespace.com slash liftoff. And as I said, liftoff is the code. If you decide to buy, you get 10% off. That's right. And it lets them know that we sent you there that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and use the code liftoff for 10 percent off your first purchase thank you squarespace for supporting liftoff and all of relay fm squarespace make your next move make your next website so i wanted to talk this week a little bit about the europa clipper we've been mentioning it more and more but we haven't really done a deep dive into the spacecraft and mission itself so we've, we've wanted to do that for a little while now and we're taking this opportunity because the uh, the mission just passed its critical design review. So this means that the team can move forward in completing fabrication and assembly of the spacecraft. And then, of course, you have lots of testing after that. But this is the last big hurdle before you start, you know, turning screws, <laughs> so to speak. I'm sure it's more fancy than, you know, putting together an Ikea uh, but when you use but, the word fabrication, I, it does bring to mind that like sheet metal is being bent yeah. and all of those things that they're big chunks of it were already being built. But like this is the final like how everything fits together and everything. It's cleared that review. So basically the design is approved and everything can be fabricated and the assembly can be built. And it's a big deal because this is actually a fairly large spacecraft. Um, the high gain antenna it's going to use to talk to earth is, uh, has a three meter diameter. So I think about like 10 feet and it's got giant solar panels that are a hundred feet, 30 meters long. So it's a very large 
craft that they have to uh, that they have to build. And its propulsion module, which has sixteen rocket engines, is three meters ten feet high. So this is not you know a little tiny. It's not a CubeSat. Uh, skateboard <laughs> that we're sending to uh, Europa. It's not. It's something uh, much larger than that. And there's also at the center of it, I think where the computer is and, and all that, there's this core that has to be protected from the intense radiation around Jupiter. So there's a lot to build in this thing. Yeah, we talked about that with Juno, that it's very similar challenges where the, the radiation is so intense there, it will fry anything that doesn't have adequate protection and that adds not only bulk but weight which means uh, you've got to be able to move that mass around both off the earth and then once you are out on your mission yeah and it actually has affected the whole flight plan of the mission the amount of radiation that is in system and especially uh, closer in and around europa so um you know, in terms of where it's going and what it's doing, um, the launch is planned for October 2024, probably on a Falcon Heavy, although that isn't official yet. Um, there's a 21-day launch window. And then because of uh, the d- length of time it takes to get to Jupiter, how far away Jupiter is, there is a gravity assist trajectory that's very impressive. It hits Mars in February of 2025. It comes back to Earth in December of 2026. And those flybys allow it to pick up enough velocity for it to get to Jupiter in April of 2030. So we're talking about a five plus year cruise with a couple of flybys in there. Um, it's a long way to get to Jupiter. Um, and when it gets there, it is not going to orbit around Europa because of the radiation in the neighborhood there. Instead, it's going to orbit around Jupiter, but it's going to make uh, 45 different close passes over Europa as close as 16 miles above the surface. So pretty darn close. And it's actually going to use, so after using Mars and Earth, in order to navigate to Jupiter when it's in system, in the Jupiter system, it's going to still use not just Europa, but Ganymede and Callisto as well as uh, as ways to change its orbit around Jupiter. And in, in addition to its propulsion, it's going to use you know gravity to move around into different orbits and alter its approach. But 45 science passes of Europa, that is the, that is the plan when it starts its work in April of 2030. So let's let's talk a little bit about the instrumentation on board and yeah we got a lot of instruments for us to break down a lot, a lot of stuff going to be riding on this thing. The first one uh, is the Europa Thermal Emission Imaging System E dash Themis Themis yeah E Themis eh, it's, it's okay it's okay that's okay. This is an infrared camera that will measure the surface temperatures of Europa. And part of Europa looks like it has recent resurfacing. So you have warmer ice and then it sort of glazes over and covers rougher, older, colder ice. You end and, up with the smoothest of terrains, right? Mm-hmm. You're repaving yeah. some of it with water uh, slush and then it, it ends up, that's the really shiny smooth bit. Uh, the infrared camera will also assist in mapping out smooth and rough areas, uh, with the idea here being that you could potentially inform both the design and planning for a potential future Europa lander, which we've, we've talked about before. The idea with, with a future lander would be you set it down and you drill, and uh, this would help uh, pick out a place that that could be possible because you want that to be in a place that it can land safely and, and you know, not, not tip over or crash into something that's, you know, 
high and pokey. Right, exactly. Nobody wants that. Mm-mm. All right. Um, next up on the the parade of instruments is the Europa Clipper magnetometer, which just is simply called the ECM. I like cool. that. I like the yep. simplicity of it. It's not trying to make a word. It's just the ECM. And it's a magnetometer. So it's going to measure the direction, strength, and the time-varying nature of magnetic fields. Europa has a magnetic field. It is created, it is thought, by the interaction between Jupiter's magnetic field and the liquid ocean of salty water that is suspected to be within Europa. Um, and so ECM will let scientists confirm the existence of that ocean, measure its depth and salinity, and determine the thickness of the ice shell. Um, and it's actually going to be on a boom, uh, so like a big, uh, like a tripod, like a big stick that's going to uh, de- deploy after launch and stick out of the craft. But the magnetometer is going to be out there and it's going to be scanning uh, to get a better idea of that salty ocean and how it interacts with uh, Jupiter's magnetic field. Up next, we have the Europa Imaging System. It's EIS, but pronounced ICE. Pretty this is good. a winner. This yeah. is a winner. This is very good. And then, I don't know if the Germans were involved in this, but that's, I, I, that is how you spell ICE in German. So I love it. <laughs> I love it because we're going to an icy place and we're going to use ICE to take a look at it. I love it. So ICE is the visible light camera suite. There's a, a wide angle and a narrow angle camera. They're both eight megapixel. They will capture stereoscopic images, but they will have six filters to acquire color images. ICE will map Europa at resolutions way higher than we've been able to before, uh, down to depending on where they are and the height of the flyby, as fine as about 20 inches per pixel. So pretty, pretty up close. Uh, this will, of course, reveal surface features and how they, how they relate to subsurface structures. Because with all of these tools, you can not only see the surface, but also what's under it and what could be affecting that. And so this will be part of uh, that puzzle that gets put together. Uh, they're also going to use it to search for signs of recent geological activity. So again, those smoothing out places we've talked about, uh, as well as potential plumes venting material into space, which... Early images of that are the whole reason we're studying Europa so intently, uh, those clues of what could lie beneath the ice. Next up is the ultraviolet spectrograph, which, as you might guess, Stephen, it's the UVS. That's all. Love it. Just call it. It's UVS. No big deal. It's a spectrograph. What does it do? Collects ultraviolet light. That's it. Puts it through a little uh, prism. Uh, the purpose of it is to help scientists identify atmospheric gases and surface materials of Europa. That's what a spectrograph's for. You can actually identify what the materials are, what's this thing made out of, and in what proportion. It's also going to search around Europa for further evidence that there's liquid water venting into space in the form of plumes. They can take spectrography of the space around Europa and see if they can detect, for example, water. So... It's an ultraviolet spectrograph, UVS. Next, we have MASPEX, which is, just stick with me here, the Mass Spectrometer for Planetary Exploration slash Europa. Okay. Uh, Uh, This is a very traditional space acronym, I would say. Yeah, it is. Uh, So this will collect gases and their... Uh, charged ions will basically come in and, and, and to quote, bounce 
between the sides of the instrument. And they can time their transit here and determine the mass of those charged gases. So the reason for this is to study the gases that may be present in a faint atmosphere. Again, this gives us information about the surface and the subsurface, things that may be uh, venting or rising out, and how the ocean and surface exchange material, depending on what gases are present. Uh, The instrument will also study how the radiation from Jupiter alters chemical compounds on the surface. So it may be that we find compounds there that are familiar to us, but clearly the radiation from Jupiter has changed them somehow. And uh, and again, like some of the others, uh, we'll look for, and then if there is plume material being vented into space, uh, this will uh, analyze that material. Yeah, this is, this is fun because this is an instrument that is collecting actual material. Like, again, even though it's not a lander, you're, you know, you're able to fly close to Europa. And if there's a tenuous atmosphere of stuff that has been sort of like shot out and is near the surface, you can grab it. And then if you go through a plume, you can grab that stuff and, and run a uh, spectrographic analysis on it too. So this is the one, this is the instrument that is going to be interacting directly with material from Europa, whatever is kind of floating around nearby. That's pretty exciting. Yep. It's like uh, the butterfly net. Okay, Sure. Looking for some, there are no butterflies in Europa no, to our just knowledge. Charged just charged ions. <laughs> so uh, next is MISE, which is the Mapping Instrument Spectrometer for Europa. M-I-S-E, MISE. That's pretty good. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. And this is an infrared light collector. Um, and it's going to produce images depicting the composition of surface materials on Europa and will be used to map the distribution of all sorts of different stuff, ices and salts and any organics, and also determine what the hot spots are by their temperature, right? They're going to be able to do that using infrared. And all of this is in, uh, in the hope of helping determine if Europa's ocean is an environment that's suitable for life and also will help characterize the geologic history of Europa. We have the Plasma Instrument for Magnetic Sounding, or PIMS. This is a a four-sensor tool called Faraday Cups. Oh, Pim's Cup. I get it. It's a a pun. Oh, man. Good job. Good job, whoever came up with that. This one gets the gold star. Uh, Mm. Wow. Because it's it's an... First off, Pim's. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Oh, it has cups. Okay, I got it. You can look it up. Pim's Cup. It's a a drink. It's like English people drink it. Anyway, yes hilarious so this will measure electrically charged particles as they strike a detector plate one in each of the four sensors Uh, so they want to understand the plasma around europa it helps them understand the ice shell thickness the ocean depth and the salt content there uh, which is uh pretty interesting i think out of all of them like out of all of these tools, the ones that tell us more about the subsurface ocean are the ones that I think are the most interesting. Yeah, I think so too. Like, uh, again, it's a trick, right? Cause you're, you're in space, but you got to figure out what's down there in the ocean. So you gotta, there are all sorts of different little tricks that they're trying to perform to figure this out. Um, next up is a Suda, the surface dust analyzer. Suda. Duh. 
That's okay. Uh, mm, along with plasma, um, tiny pieces of Europa surface inhabit nearby space. So again, micrometeorites come down, knock off a piece of Europa, and they're floating around. So that's what SUDA is for. It's to find microscopic dust particles, measure the particle composition, the speed and direction the dust is traveling so that they can actually figure out like where on Europa's surface the dust came from. And if Europa is found to be venting subsurface water and, uh, and, and containing particles especially and shooting those out into space, SUDA will be able to measure that too. So this is, again, sort of like following up on especially the discovery of the, the geysers around Enceladus, this idea that, that these ice moons shoot geysers out into space. Um, we're finally going to be able to send a craft that is designed to measure those things. And SUDA is one of those tools. And lastly, we have Reason, Radar for Europa Assessment and Sounding, colon, Ocean to Near Surface. It's not bad. Not bad. I mean, you had to put a colon in the name in order to get it to make sense, but I love it. (laughs) So this uses high-frequency radio signals that will penetrate 18 miles or 30 kilometers into the surface. Uh, Those radio waves will then bounce off subsurface water or other features and return to the spacecraft well, and that data will be used to create pictures of the the icy, frozen, liquidy goodness inside. This will let us not only look at the suspected ocean, but also be factored in when measuring ice thickness, trying to better understand the shell's interior structure and maybe the circulation of the water within. Uh, it will also study elevation, composition, and the roughness of Europa's surface. So this data will be overlaid with the all the imaging we talked about and everything else to give us a uh, a better map of the surface. And it can also sense upper the upper atmosphere at Europa for signs of plume activity. So if sub uh, surface water is being ejected into space, uh, these radio signals would bounce off of that and tell us that um, that activity is happening and where it's happening. Yeah, this is great. This is ground-penetrating radar, right? We're going to get some amazing images, but this is the thing that is uh, going to let us see sort of what's under the ice and how does that work. And I like how all of these uh, notes that uh, NASA has put together for, for describing these uh, different instruments, they always refer to the suspected ocean because we don't like everybody thinks there's an ocean in Europa, but you know, they want to prove it. And the, the idea here is that this mission is going to do that. This mission is going to show us details where we're going to be like, yes, we can see that there definitely is an ocean and here's what, um, here's what's in it <laughs> to, you know, or at least here's the, some of the shape of it and what we may, think might be in it. So, um, it's great stuff. I'm looking forward to this. This obviously it's a nine year wait for us to get any data back from this. It's a very long time, but that's uh, outer solar system exploration for you. It takes a long time. Um, speaking of which I want to at least mention there is another icy moon orbiting mission that is also happening simultaneous with this. We've talked about it here before. It's called juice. Um, the Jupiter icy moons explorer, which I love. That's a great name. Juice. Um, <laughs> And it's from the European Space Agency. So ESA is sending this. It is launching in June of 2022. It is doing an even more spectacular flyby in order to get, pick up uh, velocity to get to Jupiter. It is flying by. 
it, it is leaving Earth, flying by Earth again, flying by Venus, flying by Earth, flying by Mars, actually in February of 2025, so about the same time that Europa Clipper is flying by Mars. Hey, buddy. And then <laughs> flying by Earth again. I'm not kidding. And then it will reach Jupiter in October of 2029. So it's going to get there a little bit sooner because it's visiting even more planets to get even faster. And then uh, Juice is going to start by orbiting Jupiter like Europa Clipper, but ultimately will then go into an orbit around Ganymede and study Ganymede more closely. Ganymede, the largest uh, Jovian satellite. I love saying Jovian from time to time. And that will also be the first time that any uh, human object has orbited a moon that is not our own moon. So that'll be a first actually for juice to orbit Ganymede. So yeah, there's a lot that's going to be going on late in the decade and at the turn of decades in uh, Jupiter orbit about these icy moons that have fascinated us since the Voyager flybys um, really in the, in the uh, late seventies and early eighties. I remember like that was the big, that was when Europa became a huge topic of discussion. It ended up in Arthur C. Clarke's sequel to 2001, this idea that there are these icy moons and that they might have water oceans underneath them. And here we are, it only took, you know, 50 years, but ultimately there are going to be a couple of spacecraft that are focused on the icy moons of Jupiter. It's many fortnights away, but it is very exciting. Yeah, maybe they can uh, they can scan Venus on the way. See what's going on there. <laughs> Make juice. Look, there's a blimp. Juice. You got a little. Uh, yeah, leave a <laughs> leave a blimp behind. Juice drops off a blimp in Venus, and that that would be really funny if Juice is like, all right, I got to carry some extra stuff here. I got to go to Mars and drop this off, and I got to go to Venus and drop this off. Anyway, it's a grand tour of the inner solar system, but it's going to get them to uh, to Jupiter fast, so to speak. Fast for the outer solar system. Yeah. Well, Stephen, I think uh, I think that's it for a fortnight, but we're going to have, boy, there's going to be so much next time because we're going to have helicopter news of some sort. Yeah, uh, that's going to be uh, really exciting to follow along with. If you want to find links to the stuff we spoke about today, head on over to our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 147. There you can get in touch or become a member and support the show directly. I'd like to thank our sponsors this week. They are Technology Untangled and Squarespace. If you want to find us online, it's uh, pretty easy to do so. Jason is on Twitter as jsnell, and you can follow me there as ismh. If you're looking for another podcast and Relay to check out, I recommend Focused. With all the distractions we have, focusing seems like a superpower, but David Sparks and Mike Schmitz, the host of Focused, can show you how to get it done. Go to relay.fm slash focused or search for focused wherever you get your podcast. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all. <laughs>